This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Swinburne Astronomy Online, the world's longest-running online astronomy degree program. Visit astronomy.swin.edu.au for more information. Astronomy Cast, episode four ten, Planet Nine. Facts and fiction. Welcome to Astronomy Cast, our weekly facts based journey through the cosmos where we help you understand not only what we know, but how we know what we know. My name is Fraser Kane. I'm the publisher of University, and with me is Dr. Pamela Gay, a professor at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville, and the director of CosmoQuest. Hey, Pamela, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Fraser? Great. Uh, done for like three weeks of travel. Um, looking forward to kind of getting my life back in order i I still once again i have no idea how you travel so much without just everything falling apart uh i just can't i can't do it it's i i can generally work on airplanes as long as the airplanes are uh not vibrating so hard that it's impossible to focus on my device um i had that yet last night but uh, right. next week I fly off to the Czech Republic and I'll be at the Academic Film Festival of Alamok. Um, but other than that, I'm mostly home until May. So good. Uh, I'm mostly home until the beginning of June and there's an astronomy festival happening in New Mexico that I'm going to be speaking at. So that's awesome. I'll give you more information as we get closer to it. This episode of Astronomy Cast is brought to you by Eighth Light Inc. Eighth Light is an agile software development company. They craft beautiful applications that are durable and reliable. Eighth Light provides disciplined software leadership on demand and shares its expertise to make your project better. For more information, visit them online at www.eighthlight.com. Just remember, that's www.thedigit8th.com. Drop them a note. Eighth Light. Software is their craft. Astronomy Cast is proudly sponsored by CleanCoders.com. Training videos with personality for software professionals. So the discovery of Planet Nine has caused a wonderful, confusing uproar and a flood of misinformation in the news and social media. So we'll sort out what we actually know, what things just aren't true, and what things might be possible. Now, when we started Astronomy Cast uh, so many years ago, our first episode was about how we lost a planet. It, it was, yes. We, we, we lost Pluto, thanks to Michael Brown. Thanks to Michael Brown. But Mike Brown taketh, but Mike Brown also giveth. And so here we are, uh, low these many years later, and Mike Brown and team have potentially delivered us a new planet, Planet Nine, which needs a new name. But I guess it won't get a new name until it until it actually gets discovered. And this is the part that's kind of weird, right? People are really a little confused. Does this thing exist? Does this thing not exist? Does this have anything to do with Nibiru? Are the conspiracy nut jobs right? Should I not be defending, you know, science anymore? Uh, it's a topsy-turvy world. So, Pamela, first, uh, let's go back and sort of talk about, like, what has actually been discovered so far. So, so what has been observationally determined? These are things that you can point a telescope at the sky, point the telescope at a, new, a few more places in the sky, and after looking at all of these different places in the sky, go, okay, that chunk of ice is acting in this weird way, this chunk of ice is acting in this weird way. And when you start putting together 
all of the weird things that we're seeing, they can all be explained by one roughly 10 Earth mass object that is on a highly elliptical orbit, tilted to the plane of the rest of the solar system, and hanging out, yanking things around. And so we're seeing objects move in their orbits in ways that you would not predict, you know, uh, based on the, I guess, the calculations, look at the gravity, try and figure out where it should be moving in its orbit. And these things are all, and a bunch of these objects are all just a little askew from where they're supposed to be. And so they are inferring that this object exists, not that they've actually observed it yet. And and it's not just a few chunks of ice misbehaving. So so first of all, we do see a variety of different Kuiper belt objects that have highly elongated uh, orbits that are all kind of pointing in the same way out of the solar system. So they all come in closest to the sun on roughly the same side of the solar system. And then they stick out at a weird angle out the other side of the solar system. So you have this family of Kuiper Belt objects that are in aligned orbits pointed in the same way. Then we also have Sedna, this giant chunk of ice in the outer solar system, not quite as big as Pluto, but pretty big, with a highly elongated orbit, and and it actually is also totally explained by this object. And, and then we also find that there are what we call centaurs, these families of things orbiting in small clouds that would, would have resonance pockets where their orbits are stable and then the rest of the orbit would be cleared out. So you have these clouds of objects predicted by the theorized orbit of Planet Nine. And when we look, we find those centaurs. Okay, that's kind of awesome. And and then there, there's other things with unusual orbits that just seem to make sense. And, and so when you can explain so many different observable things by a single object with very predictable attributes, you start to think that thing probably exists. And when you look at the predictions they've made for Planet Nine, they're extremely precise. They're, they're able to say what its orbit likely is in terms of how it, it's tilted relative to the rest of the solar system. They're able to say what is the variation with nice error bars for its orbital distance from the sun. They, they can say even what is its theorized brightness. And given that brightness, would we have seen it already? So there's, there's a whole bunch of beautifully aligned stuff that tell us the bugger is probably out there and currently sitting in front of the Milky Way refusing to be detected. Right. So let's get on to that second part, which is like, why, why haven't they found it? I mean, they, do they know where it is, roughly where it is, so, or so specifically where it is? They know what its orbit would be. We don't have sufficient data to say, based on how things are, are orbiting, to say exactly where in that orbit it would be. But if you look at the WISE satellite's uh, survey of the sky and start saying, okay, where can we rule out using WISE data that 
there would have been uh, things here, there, this other place. You look at that part of the sky and WISE doesn't see anything. So using WISE, you can say it's probably not on its closest approach to the sun. It's not at 200 AU. It's got to be further out. Okay, fine. So so we used WISE. Then what other data is out there? And we have the Catalina Sky Survey, which is year after year working to map out all of the asteroids that are potentially hazardous to us here on Earth. But the data they use to try and detect all of those asteroids can be reprocessed to try and, and recover slowly moving objects in the outer solar system. And, and this is something that Mike Brown and collaborators did going through, and, and they didn't just do it to, to try and look for Planet Nine, but they also said, okay, let's take a blind look at, at all of this data from the Catalina Sky Surveys, and they called this the Serendipitous All-Sky Survey. Looking at it blind, they recovered all of the Kuiper Belt objects in those parts of the sky at those magnitudes that we would have expected to find, except for one that was hanging out in front of the Milky Way, refusing to be seen against all of the background objects. So they know that this technique works. They know they can look at this data, they can recover objects, and they know down to what magnitude they can recover objects. And and they believe that it's down to about 19.1 V magnitude in the north and 18.6 in the south. And, and so that tells us that this is a faint sucker, but it's still something that you could recover with a good 30-inch telescope. A good 30-inch a good that we've a all got kicking inch. around. Well, yeah. but but it, this means that you don't have to be using the VLT. You don't have to be using one of the hardest to get times on telescopes in the world. You need a good standard university telescope. A lot of universities have these in a dome somewhere on their campus. Right, right. It's, but it's it's about knowing where to point the telescope to really catch it. So using Catalina, they, they ruled out a whole chunk of the sky. Now, Catalina didn't allow them to rule out the entire sky. So so they also looked at the Pan Stars Transit Survey, the Pan Stars Moving Object Survey. That got them fainter. Uh, so, so... They tried. They, they tried. Really tried. So, so now they've gotten down to about 22.5 magnitudes. And this is where you're really starting to go, I need a multimeter telescope now. Please give me a bigger telescope. So they ruled it out except, annoyingly, for that part of the sky that, that probably, uh, yeah, means it's hiding in the Milky Way. So it turns out that the sucker and there's amazing plots that help understand just how bad the situation is. It it is probably out beyond 600 AU right now. It is probably at a visual V magnitude of 22nd magnitude or fainter. And it is probably because it's so far out moving so slowly, less than two tenths of an arc second per hour, which most stars, when you look at them with a good sight, will be one arc second across. To so to get the planet to move 
five diameters of of what it would appear like you're looking at like five times five 25 hours just to get it to move a couple of diameters and that's not going to be something you can detect easily right so you're gonna need a you know a world-class telescope one of the you know one of the big one of the big guns and you're going to need to know precisely where to point it so that you're going to get the resolution. And then you're going to have to leave that thing collecting light for hours to be able to get a, you know, a pretty good, you know, observation of this and object moving they don't at the have right, to be at the right speed. contiguous hours. So, so right. you can yeah, look no, at go it, ahead and, come back. Sure. But, but, that, but that's what you're looking at, at what you're going to need. And so this is just one of those things that they just don't have like it's just there's just all those telescopes are busy and no one's going to give up space in one of the big in the big guns just to to examine the sky one arc second at a time and and it's a pretty big chunk of the sky that it's predicted to be in so while we can say it's over there somewhere um over there somewhere is is still several tens of degrees and that's not the whole sky but yeah it's 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 a bit difficult so you got into some of the facts about what we know you talked about like we know it's about 600 au what's that that's like pluto's like 100 au ish no, it's it's not that far out. It's it's in the twenties, I believe. Oh, okay, um, so, so much looking, much further than Pluto. Yeah, okay. this this is a very distant system, and and it's it's just not the kind of thing that we're used to dealing with, even thinking about. And this is starting to trigger some interesting rumors floating around the internet. Right. Okay. Well, we'll get on to the rumors then. Uh, so what are some of the rumors well, that that people are, are proposing is going on here? One, one of my favorites is um, I love how people don't know how to use units sometimes. People are trying to say that the every 20 to 30 million year extinction cycles, which we do kind of sort of see here on Earth, are caused by Planet Nine. Now, the problem with this is that estimates on the orbital time for this new planet are on the scale of 20,000 years, which means any cycle that we'd be looking for should be a 20,000-year cycle, and people are now trying to blame a 20-million-year cycle on the object. And million and thousand are not the same thing. I, if they were, I'd, my bank account would be better. <laughs> Right. Uh, so, right. So this this idea of like, it's the nemesis theory, right? That there is right. something out there. And, and it's not like there's anything wrong with the nemesis theory itself, right? This idea that there is like a brown dwarf or maybe some kind of red dwarf that is actually, that the sun is actually a binary star. It has this binary companion and this object moves into, you know, closer into the solar system every 20 million years, 30 million years, and lets out a, a cascade of objects, you know, interactions from the Oort cloud, throws comets, moves the asteroid, asteroid belts around a little bit and causes some, some damage. And and it is super interesting that the uh, that the mass extinctions do seem to happen 
on this fairly regular interval. It's absolutely this is absolutely science. So, yeah. but as not you said, related science. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with the nemesis theory, just that that planet nine wouldn't account for the the nemesis interval. And and I do want to make a correction. Um, I was fact checking while we go. Pluto is is about forty AU's away. So so we're looking at Pluto, thirty nine point four four AU's. This object we're looking at currently, it's around six hundred AU's. So huge difference in distance. Right. Uh, what else are so, some theories that are coming around on what we're looking at here? So one one of the things that that's happening is people are striving to read as much into every physics paper as they can, and there were some scientists who were working quite hard to try and figure out: is there any way we can narrow down on where the sucker is? in its orbit using any data that we have, any of it. And one of the ideas that was put forward was if we had enough data from the Cassini space probe that would, as it orbits Saturn, give us more precise information on Saturn's orbit, maybe that would help us learn more about where where planet nine is because planet nine would be plugging away pulling on saturn gravitationally creating small anomalies that we may not be able to see from the planet earth but we might be able to detect given the fullness of time in cassini's orbital data and somehow between that research paper and the internet um it became there are anomalies in cassini's orbit that no one had heard of before there are anomalies that have been observed in cassini's orbit and they tell us exactly where planet nine is no and poor nasa had to actually come out with a press release saying no there are no anomalies in cassini's orbit and if we were able to keep the spacecraft orbiting till 2020, then we might have enough information on Saturn's orbit that has been refined thanks to Cassini that we might know something. But, you know, Cassini's almost out of fuel, so we're crashing it in 2017. And so we don't get to do this. And we're really sorry. But really, there's no anomalies in Cassini's orbit. And, and it's just one of those press releases that you read it. And I'm like, wow, someone had a really bad day. Because yeah. you can just imagine some orbital person is being like, you never told us there were anomalies. And the person's like, there aren't anomalies. Um, yeah, no, there aren't anomalies in Cassini's orbit. Uh, okay, so so then let's talk about the big elephant in the room, which is this idea of Nibiru, right? Which you and I and Phil Plate have been debunking this thing yeah. since, I'm not kidding you, 1997, I think, yeah. is when Phil Plate was starting to write articles about how this is not a thing. Yeah. And people are like showing pictures from their camera and they show two suns and they're like, see, the planet's on its way. Yeah, no. Um, yeah. I've, and so, you know, could there be a planet careening towards Earth in the center of the solar system that's no. on a really long elliptical orbit and we just haven't seen it and it's and it's on its way? Maybe. But, but it would have to be. One. But it's not this one because once again, 
we can see Pluto, which is, fifth, you know, as you said, 40 astronomical units away, and it's teeny tiny, and it's, you know, it's not very bright, and we can detect it with with big telescopes. So anything that would be coming our way that would interact with us or impact us in any way would would need to be a a you know a very powerful telescope it would be very bright in the sky we would be able to see it and we just we just don't see it mike brown one of the best astronomers in the world can't find it he's found all the others he can't find this one yet and and the thing about the theorized nibiru is first of all it gets us back to that 27 million year orbit because they like to use it to explain mass extinctions this this we know would have a tens of thousands of year orbit so orbital time doesn't work the other thing is people are like is it going to kill us next month well think about how long it took pluto to get visited by new horizons we launched that spacecraft when pluto was still a planet and it was traveling really expletive fast for a solar system object and if you think about how long it takes for comets that get detected out by jupiter to make it into the inner solar system if something was going to wipe us out next month we'd see that sucker and it would be like way closer than even mars is by now yeah yeah absolutely so now again you know nemesis perfectly reasonable theory uh a planet that gets close to the inner solar system it's possible although you know you would wonder why all of the uh the rest of the solar system wasn't all messed up from this planet coming by every few thousand years um so but the point is that it would be detectable and it just isn't so there goes that theory uh so were there any other sort of uh, nutty theories that, that well, you think need to be squ- it wasn't squashed here? a nutty theory so much as an intriguing Twitter exchange. So so this weekend, poor uh, innocent Mike Brown ended up having to stick his head in and say, no, Planet Nine is not going to destroy the Earth. And I believe it was either Ian O'Neill or Dr. Matthew Francis. They're both doctors, but their Twitter accounts, it's it's Astro Engine or Dr. M.R. Francis. And I don't remember which of the two it was, said, what I want to know is if Planet Nine is going to destroy Pluto. And, and Mike Brown basically responded, we're working to figure that out because I want to know that too. So, so it sounds like there's some interesting outer solar system dynamic calculations going on to figure out what is the long-term perturbations that this object is going to cause. What are the long-time bad things that it might trigger by throwing different icy bodies around over the fullness of time we're not yeah, talking over next month. billions of years yeah right so yeah it's it's i follow follow pluto killer uh astro engine and dr mr francis they all have these great exchanges on a fairly regular basis right right and so i guess the the point here is that you know when we look at pluto it has this really strange elliptical inclined orbit very different from from the rest of the planets um and so one of the possibilities is that planet nine helped it get into that weird orbit and it's going to help it get out of that weird orbit right out of the solar system maybe way down the road one thing this is a little unrelated right is that 
don't astronomers sort of have odds on whether Jupiter will eventually throw Earth out of the solar system? Like, wasn't there, <laughs> right? I, I think it's been pretty much figured out that isn't going to happen. But looking at the other side of this problem, there there have been a few people kicking around the idea that rather than Planet Nine flinging things out of our solar system, maybe our solar system early on ate pl- Planet Nine from another solar system. So perhaps in the earliest days, when our solar system was right butted up against a bunch of other solar systems in that open cluster that we formed in, maybe we just happened to have stolen Planet Nine. It's it's that no one knows even what the probability of that is. Uh, most likely, my thinking based on not having done a Monte Carlo simulation uh, is it probably formed here because it actually makes us more normal of a solar system. If you look around, most solar systems have a few oddballs in them. They have things that are in weird places. We're far too normal. This is why like all of our solar system formation models are just not sophisticated enough to deal with the rest of the galaxy. This finally makes us a little bit less explainable and thus more normal. Helps us fit in. It does. Uh, so if we could get out to Planet Nine, what what would it look like? I mean, you said it's, you know, maybe 10 to 12 times the mass of the Earth. Is it a nice giant? Is it rocky? Is it ice? What is it? There, There's actually some really neat work being done uh, where where they're actually starting to come out. And, and the, this isn't Michael Brown and Constantine Batigan. This is a, a different team over in Europe. Uh, I believe one of the authors' names is Esther, and I, I wish I could remember the rest of their names because that's not useful information. Anyways, there's teams that are currently working to model if you had – a, a 10 mass object, and we know 10 mass objects are going to be basically ice giants like Neptune. If we had a 10 Earth mass object in the outer solar system, how would the uh, materials inside it have settled out? And you, you basically end up with an icy, rocky core surrounded by various layers of very cold gas. You're, you're looking at something that was in the mid 200s of degrees Kelvin. It's cold. Um, And potentially quite shiny. That's what we're hoping for. But that's just models. Reality has a tendency to surprise us. Right. An object that big is going to still have a tremendous amount of heat and pressure in its core. And that's going to go pretty far out into its outer layers and, you know, an atmosphere before it really starts to cool down to that to that minus 200 degrees that the the upper upper atmosphere so but definitely like gas like made of like the same stuff as neptune so it's we're looking at something that's basically four times maybe not quite that big roughly four times the the radius of earth um so yeah cold let's say that we want let's say we did get a fix on it we wanted to send a flyby to it what kind of scale would it take to actually reach out and and put an object into it? just a flyby like like New Horizons? Um, it it's not that it's it's hard to do. You just need to know its orbit and then be very patient across multiple generations. Um, it's just time. It takes time to get that far out. And if it's at six hundred AU, while it probably is on its way back sooner rather than later. 
it's not moving very fast. Yeah, I'm just doing the math in my head, right? About 150 years-ish. 100, 100 plus years for sure, depending on how many gravity assists you can you can uh, get going. And, and an ion drive would help somewhat because you'd have constant acceleration, but still. Still. And and the one of the other kind of really interesting things is that this could just be one of a whole class of objects out there. You know, this is the one that we can kind of detect, but it's entirely possible. There's just more of these out there, even bigger ones, just the further out you go. Well, so mathematically, we, we, we have a, a few different things that point to maybe having some other larger Earthus, Earth like sized things out there. So there's a cliff in the Kuiper Belt as near as we can tell out uh, around 55 AU. And one way to explain that cliff in the Kuiper Belt where it's just like suddenly we have no more objects out here. One way to get there is to say maybe we have an Earth-like object that's resonance is causing things to get knocked out of that particular band of orbits. But mathematically, we're not seeing any evidence for anything other than maybe something that's weeding out the, the Kuiper belt at that 55 AU cliff and then evidence for this. Now, there could be further things out, but you start to run into problems that they're not going to be gravitationally attached all that firmly. So how did they get there and, and why did they stay? Well, uh, so I guess we'll have to wait until Brown and team actually get some photographs of this object before we can come back around and, and give an update. Everything is still so theoretical right now. And, and I am going to make one more correction. Uh, we, ha- we have people pointing out that I made a unit flaw. It's uh, the temperature of this theoretical object would be 47 Kelvin or minus 226 Celsius, not mid 200s Kelvin. That would be death. Right. That would be. So thank you for your patience, because this is all new stuff that we're learning as we go. So it's not often that we get new worlds. And, and so basically, it's once every very long lifetime. So the last time this happened was in the early 1900s. Now we're in the early 2000s. So um, you and I will be dead the next time a planet is found, should history right. prove itself forward uh, right and and just it, it's good to know that you are here as the science is getting figured out it's just like the same thing that we say about dark matter and dark energy we've got the slightest hint that something is going on and now the telescopes of the world are turning to try and piece in this puzzle and it might be that it's a dead end and it might be that the math was wrong and it might be that there is a whole new planet out there and we're within a couple of decades of, of having some images of it. Of course, we just need to wait for the Large Synoptic Sky Survey and uh, <laughs> Gaia, it should find it. Gaia will do this one Gaia if, will do it's, it. okay. if it's pointed in the right place. But but what's so amazing about this is is you have you have Michael Brown and, and Constantine who always gets left off of absolutely everything and we really need to to stop doing that it's constantine badigan i may be mispronouncing it but you need to remember his name it's not just michael brown on this they they said hey we have this notion there's this world out here let us show you why we think this and now scientists all over the world are looking to try and understand all they can as 
the entire astronomical community goes, well, how do we find this sucker? And that's kind of awesome to watch. All right. Well, well, stay tuned. To be continued. To be continued. Thanks, Pamela. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Astronomy Cast, a nonprofit resource provided by Astrosphere New Media Association, Fraser Kane and Dr. Pamela Gay. You can find show notes and transcripts for every episode at astronomycast.com. You can email us at info at astronomycast.com. Tweet us at astronomycast. Like us on Facebook or circle us on Google+. We record our show live on Google+, every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern, or 2000 Greenwich Mean Time. If you missed the live event, you can always catch up over at CosmoQuest.org. If you enjoy Astronomy Cast, why not give us a donation? It helps us pay for bandwidth, transcripts, and show notes. Just click the donate link on the website. All donations are tax deductible for U.S. residents. You can support the show for free, too. Write a review or recommend us to your friends. Every little bit helps. Click support the show on our website to see some suggestions. To subscribe to the show, point your podcatching software at astronomycast.com slash podcast.xml or subscribe directly from iTunes. Our music is provided by Travis Searle and the show is edited by Preston Gibson. 